You must be really tired. You must have a rough week. <coughs> I thought they'd been shouting amen and hurry. <laughs> right. Right. Thank God you, bless you. Thank you very much. If you have your Bible with you, would you turn please to the Psalm number 34? And just as you're turning to the place, I would just concur with the words of welcome that you have received. And I trust that it will be uh, a very hearty and warm welcome and that you'll not feel a stranger among the people of God here on the Killinure Road. We're glad to see you. Amen. And some folks have been faithful every single night of the mission from the first Sunday evening right through to this last week of the uh, weeknight of the mission. And we're so thankful to God's people for their presence, their prayers and for their support. And there are others who have come at times as they were able to do so. And we're glad to see you and some folks for the first time this evening. And we want to welcome you all in our Saviour's name. And we thank you sincerely for the support you've given to the mission. It's hard to believe that two weeks have gone so quickly. They've passed by. And in many ways, we're not saying that we're the only ones in the country preaching the gospel. We would never be so foolish as to think that. But uh, we do recognize that whenever a mission closes Mm. and the gospel has been preached and prayer has been intensified for a district and individuals have been specifically petitioned before God for. And I do believe that closing of a gospel mission, no matter when it happens, is always a very solemn time. And I do believe that after God and grace reaches out to individuals and many a gospel mission follows that judgment comes Mm. many a gospel mission has seen individuals who perhaps were given the invitation and didn't come and some who did come but they didn't take christ as their savior they could find the door closing they could find what's true of scripture where the lord says my spirit shall not always strive with man And we're not trying to scare you into some false profession. Mm. We're not here to get any false professions Mm. at all. Mm. In fact, I don't believe for one moment we could stir a single emotion of ourselves. That's right. We couldn't prick your conscience. We might appeal to your intellect. We may have reason and persuasion in the gospel. We may be given, as it were, that help to appeal to higher intelligence and even logically present the, the case for the gospel and show a sinner how irrational would be the behavior to reject the Lord. But they'll go outside the door and they'll go out with no concern in their soul. But I can tell you something. I have been in the prayer meetings in this place and we have met with the Lord. And I believe we have presented a case before God mm-hmm. on your behalf. Mm-hmm. And we've been praying and I felt tonight in the prayer meeting tonight that the Lord just came down and sat beside us in a very definite and real way. Amen. And we had the ear of God tonight. Mm-hmm. And I was loath to let the Lord go in that prayer meeting. Mm-hmm. And while we're coming to give a testimony, I would have preferred to stay on and lingered in the place of prayer tonight. I might even feel that would do more good in that place mm-hmm. than here, praying for your soul. And mm-hmm. I believe the Lord touched my own heart for sinners I believe the Lord's given me a greater passion for the lost and that shows that we really do need the Lord to come mm-hmm. and to sustain us and help us 
Now we've been praying for you tonight. But listen to me, you can answer these prayers for us. By putting down those puny arms of rebellion. And turning your life over to Christ. Giving your heart to the Son of the living God. Mm. Coming to the Saviour. Whatever phrases we use or terminology, it means the same thing, you know. To acknowledge that you're a sinner. Bound for a lost eternity in hell. Now that's not a pleasant thing to say. And listen to me, we don't gloat in that. Mm -hmm. And we don't mean to offend you by saying that. But listen to me, that's the truth. And I would be false, I would be disingenuous if I was for one moment to hold back the truth from you. I really do believe in this mission that God has been speaking to individuals. And I trust tonight as you have come, maybe for the first time, second, third, and you've come back again, that God will speak to your heart. And when God is speaking, could I say something to you? This is what's been impressed in my mind. When God is speaking to an individual, if you have any concern about your soul tonight, Mm -hmm. any concern about heaven and how to get there, And hell, how to escape it. If you have any sense of guilt or your conscience is pricking you, and you know if you were to die now, things are not right between you and the Holy God. Could I say something to you tonight? Now listen to me. The Reverend David McLaughlin or Thomas Martin has not put that there. That's right. The Spirit of God has. And the Bible says, my spirit shall not always strive. Now that implies he does strive. And you know his striving, working, whenever you have a sense that you need to get right with him. Now, if you resist that continually and the Lord withdraws his striving and saving influence, listen to me, you will never have a thought about your soul again. You will never consider heaven and how to get there and hell, how to be to be escaped and delivered from. You will never have any thought of your sin. It's the Spirit of God who's working. And we're very conscious, and in many ways we mean this spiritually, we have taken a step back. And in this mission we've been treading very softly because God's at work. And we trust the Lord will have his way and perfect work in your heart. Amen. And listen to me, listen to me. It's for his glory alone. That's right. It's for his glory. Mm -hmm. And there's nothing in it for this church. That's right. There's nothing in it for this church. There's nothing in it for this preacher. Mm -hmm. It's the glory of Christ in the midst of the church. Amen. And he saves for his glory. And he restores backsliders for his glory. And he blesses us for his glory. Do you know why? Because everything is for the glory of Christ. That's right. And I trust that tonight... Uh, by the way, I would rather preach than testify. I really mean that. And you say, well, because you've been a bad boy. Well, I have, that's true. I have, and I, I'm, I'm ashamed of that, tell you the truth. But I don't like to testify because I feel there's too much of Thomas Martin comes out and too little of Christ. I'd rather preach, but I've been asked to do it. And I trust the Lord will help me as I share with you something of what Christ has done for me. It's not just a testimony of what he has done in the past. I trust it will be an up-to-date one, what he is still doing in my heart and in my life. I want to read a few verses to you from Psalm 34. The words of David, the psalmist from the 34th Psalm. And we read these words in God's word. 
I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul shall make her boast in the Lord. The humble shall hear thereof and be glad. O magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he heard me and delivered me from all my fears. Mm. They looked unto him, that's Christ, and were lightened and their faces were not ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord, and by the way, that's Christ. In the Old Testament, that phrase refers to none other than the messenger of Jehovah. The angel of the Lord is Christ. And here he is. The angel of the Lord encampeth round about them that fear him and delivereth them. And in verse 8, O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed or happy is the man or woman that trusteth in him. Amen. Amen. We'll end our reading at verse 8. The Lord always blesses the public reading of his own precious and infallible word. Let's bow briefly in prayer, please. Father, we thank thee this evening for a sense of the divine presence. We just take a few moments to still our hearts afresh before thee. We want to acknowledge thee as the true and living God. Yes. We don't want, Lord, to go on some egotistic exercise. Mm. We don't want to put some veneer over something Christian when it's really in the flesh. Mm. We desire, gracious Father, for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Amen. We're very conscious that our blessed Saviour said, of the work of the Holy Ghost on earth after his resurrection, that he would testify of, of Christ. That he will glorify Christ. Mm. And therefore, Lord, we recognize that the flesh will not do that. That's right. We pray, Lord, for cleansing afresh in the blood of Christ. Amen. We ask, Lord, for the forgiveness of all my sin. Oh, and I now stand Fly as a blood. candidate for the infilling of the Spirit of the living God. Oh God. That man may be hid behind the cross. Yes. That Christ may be lifted up and exalted in mm. this meeting house. To this end, Almighty God, I pray now for that endowment of oh power God. from on high. I ask, Lord, for the Spirit's anointing, and I beseech mm. thee now to give me wisdom and power as I seek to lift up Christ in my testimony. I thank thee, O God, it's not mine, but the testimony of Christ in me. Amen. And therefore, to this end, Father, in answer now to prayer, mm. glorify thy Son. Mm. Save the lost. Restore the backslidden. Revive the church. Amen. We ask these things believing in Jesus' precious and worthy name. Amen. Amen. I never had the privilege of being brought up in a Christian home. In fact, it was quite the opposite. I don't always like to go into my past too much, but my home was a very ungodly home. And I say that 
perhaps a little lightly because there are stronger terms I could use. But my home was not a pleasant home to be brought up in. My mum and dad, both of them, were uh, confirmed alcoholics. And I would say my mother could drink as much as my father could. They could never really outdrink one another. And I can't remember in my home whenever I was born in England, in Nottingham, you'll find that very hard to believe when you hear this refined Lurgan accent who murders the English language every time he opens his mouth. But uh, I was born in Nottingham in England. But my mum and dad, I never remember any harmony in our home. It was a very dysfunctional home. In fact, there was no happiness at all. I can remember the arguments, the fights. I can remember the house parties. I was introduced to alcohol as a three-year-old boy, sitting in my father's uh, living room as he was partying with his drinking partners. He would have filled a little cap that he had taken off the Guinness bottle and he would have filled it up and pressed it to my lips and then he would have given me more and more until on one occasion I remember it I was literally staggering around the living room until one of my father's friends out of sheer embarrassment said Tommy, my father's name Tommy, you shouldn't be doing that to the child My father hadn't even the sense to stop it himself But you know, I can't imagine that I would ever press alcohol to the lips of any of my children. But there we go, and the Lord, I believe, in mercy and grace, it kept our home because social workers should have come in. Social workers should have taken the three Martin boys, my brother Colin, myself in the middle, and my younger brother David, into social care. I don't know why they ever didn't, but I do believe the mercy of God was upon us. And even in those days, whenever things were pretty bad, and my mum and dad were always arguing, they're always fighting. I only discovered just a few years ago that they were never properly married and it just was a, a total mess the way things were set up. And I'd go into some of the detail at the end of my testimony and you'll understand why I'm saying this. But one thing I will say, my father, whenever he was sober, he did care for his children and he sought to do his best for us, but things were not good at home. My mum and dad eventually split up. The home was broken up. And my dad, for whatever reason, I don't know, he took custody of his three boys. He managed to get us out of England onto a boat and over to Northern Ireland, where he was originally from. And my father had his parents down in Ardmore, just outside of Lurgan on a little farm. We went there. And for a number of years, life seemed to be pleasant enough. My father couldn't get into Lurgan to drink. He was away out in the country and he had to get a bus and so on. And my grandparents were very strict, even though they weren't believers themselves. We were sent along to the local primary school. I often say this, and I know there are young people here. Things have changed today because young people love school today. Isn't that right, boys? absolutely love it and they stay on till they're about 22 years of age it's unbelievable i left school when i was 15 and i don't even know if that was the legal age to leave but if i was 12 i would have left school i would have left school when i was eight in fact i wouldn't have gone to school at all never mind leave it someone says did you never like school i says well there were three times that was break time dinner time and home time 
You know, whenever I was running about and the troubles were in the province and someone says to me, how do you like school? I would say, I like it closed or semtext. You know what I mean? You can't say that today. Uh, school for sons great, but I didn't like school. I was sent along to the local primary school. I wasn't good at doing anything. Uh, I failed my geography exam. I couldn't find a classroom. <laughs> there was no excuse. See, see, whenever I was young, my father drunk and drunk, and we had nothing. And it was very poor. And when I went to school, I couldn't even afford to pay attention. And that didn't go down too well for the examinations. But I never forget going to primary school because we had to walk a mile from my grandfather's house up to the local school. We were sent out in the morning, the three of us, Colin, myself and David, and I loved to throw stones, just loved to throw stones. And uh, any wonder I got into trouble, but I loved to throw stones. So we used to have to hook them out of the ground and, and there was the peat and the moss and we used to go through the fields and I used to hook them out. But what happened was I threw them at all the wildlife I could see. Anything moved, I just threw at it. Hope you're not an animal lover and meet me at the door. I don't do it now, by the way, but I did it then. It's no weird. sense. <laughs> so what happened was I dug them out, but your nails were all dirty. And, and when you went to school, there was a hand inspection. And no matter what I did, I couldn't get the dirt out of those hands. That was in the days whenever they caned you. Do you remember them days? Would they bring them back again? And I remember trying to get the dirt out of my hands. You literally stood in the queue and you showed both your hands. The teacher inspected front and back and then the nails as well. And every single day going up to that school, I couldn't resist hoking the stones out and firing them. So it meant that you were keen most of the day. I used to laugh and think to myself, like the little boy in the queue for the hand inspection, puts the hand out and the teacher says, if you can show me a dirtier hand than that one, I'm not keying you. Just put the other one out. Well, that's exactly what I could have done and not get keen. My father eventually moved from Ardmore into Lurgan. We thought things might perhaps maybe take a turn for the better because my dad was now working. The factory was beside him. He was earning a good wage. He was coming home in the evenings and things we thought might work out well for us. And then you're in the town, there were more friends and then into a new school and a new start with a new house, not in our grandparents' house. And perhaps my dad now would settle down, not one single bit. When my father got that liberty, had us in the town, he started to go out on a Tuesday night to the darts match that was up in the Windsor Bar. He would have moved from there and played darts around the other public houses right across the entire province. He would have gone up to Glenavon Social Club, into the Institute, into uh, the Dolphin or the New Century, they called it, and right across the public houses. I knew every single one of them by name and visited them and was brought into them, into the little boxes and set in those public houses as my father sat drinking for days on end. And there were times whenever he came home on a Thursday evening, got his wages and straight out. And he never returned home again till the early hours of Monday morning. Now, I was only five, six or seven years of age during that time. And my father never once got a babysitter. Not once did he ask anyone, would you look after my three boys? We just looked after ourselves. Had a few schemes going would help me. Do you know the old lemonade bottles? They were... You had to get them and return them again. There was like 10 pence if you returned them. See a few heads nodding. They're my generation. And uh, what happened was I would have gone around Lurgan and lifted those lemonade bottles, brought them back again. Now, now some of them probably were sitting out for the lemonade man, but I just took them anyway. I thought maybe they'd left them out for me and then brought them down, got the money. But my father used to send me around Lurgan to gather them up 
in order to get the money to get him 10 embassy regal. Never forget it. And I had to go around gathering those lemonade bottles up, finding them wherever I can, and then going down to the shop, cashing them in, and buying my father cigarettes and bringing the cigarettes to him. And so I just kept it up and did it for myself. There was a lot of rats in Lurgan at that time. And I used to stand and watch those rats. And then again, I would have helped out with some of them, just supervising, of course. <laughs> and then the biggest thing that killed me was they were throwing these lemonade bottles at each other as well. And I could just see these 10 pences going to and fro, thinking to myself, what a fortune is being thrown away at each other. We had a gas meter and uh, it took the old shilling. And what happened was my father would have said to me with a few coins, go over to the lady next door and ask her, could she give you change of that for the shilling for the gas meter? So I went over and she was always a kind lady. And she always says to me, there's the shilling son. And she gave me the money back. But I never give it to my dad. I kept it in my pocket. And then I kept the shilling as well because I had these washers and I had all these foreign coins and they fitted into the gas meter. And I turned him round and there I was getting the gas. So what happened when the gas man came? The three of us bolted out of the house, you see. And my dad used to go, where are they away? And then when he emptied the meter, there was nothing in it. Absolutely. And, and he just goes, Tommy, look at that. It's just washers, coins and bits of cork. You can't, can't do this. And he worked it out what my father owed. So my father took it out of his pocket, had to pay with the deficit of what was there. The man left them all sitting there. When I came into the house, my father, he was a violent man. And I don't mean to, to say anything too hard against my dad, but he was a drunken, violent man. And my body bore the marks of his cruelty. And I mean that. The fishing rods, he would have beaten me to pulp. And as many a night I slept, and woke up the next morning, couldn't even open my eyes, having to go to school. Mm. And, and I'm putting that lightly, friends. I really mean that. But he would have given me a hiding, but it was worth it for I was getting paid for this hiding. And when, when my father gave me the hiding, that was fine. The gas man had left all the stuff behind. I just filled my pockets again and just started all over again. What happened was in Lurgan, we, we longed for a television, so we eventually got a television. Did you know that we were the first family in Northern Ireland to have a 50-inch television. It was from the front to the back. You know the big broad ones that you get? You could hardly bring it into the house. Well, my father hired one, and he paid rent on it per week, and he never paid a single bill in the house. In fact, that television that we rented, my father never paid for it at all. And when they came round from Radio Randalls, I think you called them, up in the town centre, they came down to collect the television, and my father says, look, the boys, they, they, they need television and I'm out working and these poor boys need that television. And they says, OK, I'll tell you what we'll do. We'll put a meter on. And it was like a rectangular box with a wee uh, turn key. And you put 10 pence in and you got something like an hour's viewing of your television. And my father then agreed that he would get this box in and it would cost just a little more and that would offset the arrears, you see. But we worked in the paper factory and they made boxes for these television meters. And they got the boxes wrong and they sent them back again, but they'd left a set of keys inside one of the boxes. And my father got the keys and he tried the wee meter and lo and behold, it opened the drawer. And he was able to regurgitate this one ten pence piece through the system. Now, this is the truth, folks. What do you hear this? This is the truth. We watch television. 
Now, you can watch it 24-7 now, but in, whenever I was watching television, you watched it until there was a little dot came on. And the last thing to be played was the Queen. And no matter when it was, my father made us, the three of us, stand in our living room like book agents you mentioned earlier on. Absolutely like this for the Queen. And we watched it to the very dot. Well, what happened was when the man came to empty the meter, my dad used to get his pockets, get what 10 pence as he could, and fire them in as quick as he could. And then the man turned them over and he goes, Tommy, there's not much in that. And my dad used to say, I know the boys aren't watching much television. And I used to think, you we stand for the Queen every night. And right to the very dot, you remember the white dot came in the middle of the screen? So there was a lot of scams going on in our house and there's a lot of other things and I was looking after myself. My father went out drinking, but the worst of all was he came home with about a dozen men and those men were, were just tanked up with alcohol and they started to gamble. The card schools in our house uh, were vicious and without a doubt whatsoever, they fought each other. I heard the furniture being broke. I heard the windows being smashed. I listened to the, the rows and the fights and you just knew that a couple of men were wrestling on the ground. Uh, you could hear the furniture being moved. You could hear all that was going on and it disturbed me. I was upstairs listening to all this and whenever they were fighting, I'm thinking, I wonder, is my dad in the middle of that? And I was afraid to go down, leave my bed because my father ordered us. There was one man one night and he was in the UDR and they were handing out personal protection weapons uh, for the UDR men and he had his with him and someone was cheating and he just pulled it out like that. It was like the OK Corral. I never forget the time whenever one of the men come up and he leaned over, the three of us lay in one bed, that's all we had and uh, you didn't have the duvet, you had an overcoat. He used to say, I've just pulled the sleeve out of the good duvet <laughs> and we were lying there and up comes... This man, he leans over, well, boys, how are you? And I heard this thump on the ground. I thought to myself, I think that's his wallet. I was hoping it was. <laughs> he says, I think that's his wallet. So me being a Christian man I am, I just said nothing. and just let him go on down the stairs. So we searched and we found a gun. And all of a sudden we were like John Wayne flicking it around our fingers and all. And said, look at this, it's a big, big, massive gun. It was very heavy. Never forget it. And uh, next thing we heard a commotion downstairs. And there was these feet came rushing up the stairs and put the light on. And there was us with a gun. I never forget my dad. Here's my dad. The guy, son, put it down. Just put it down. And I was just like this here with this gun. But uh, that was the kind of home. And I'm not exaggerating those things, friends. I really mean that. That is the gospel truth before the Lord. I'm not exaggerating. Those things actually happened in our home. In fact, there was a lady came to our home called Elsie, a very good lady. This lady began to help the Martin boys uh, she would have uh, encouraged us I believe to do the right thing she would have worked on my dad trying to get him out to church but she couldn't and uh, she hit on the idea that she would befriend us come into our house but my father never did a thing for himself I had to do along with my two brothers all the ironing the cooking the cleaning the sewing and I was well domesticated long before I got married uh, my three boys, they could hardly do a hand's turn in the house. If they ever do get married, dear help, the creator they marry, believe me, she'll have to work hard to look after those boys. But I was well domesticated. But I will say this, Elsie came round and she was a great lady. She was a really a gem in our home. And she was a Christian. She was a believer. But ours was the most ungodly home in Lurgan. In fact, it was a halfway house for every drunk that ever wanted to come and have a card school and gamble and just sit 
even in our home and many other things were going on as well, which I don't want to delve into. But I will say this, Elsie came and she decided that uh, she would try and get my father out to church. Tommy, would you come out to church? My dad said, no, Elsie, I wouldn't be able to make it because he was full drunk from the night before. But he did say a thing that really disturbed me. He says, but I know the three boys would love to go to church. I thought, Dad, I'm not going to church. And when Elsie left, my father came with full authority and he says, you're going to church, boy. And when Elsie comes on Sunday, you'll be ready. And you three boys, you're going out to church. Because he didn't want to go, you see. So Elsie dragged us out to church Sunday morning, Sunday evening. was the last place I wanted to be. And she came back again. Tommy, would you come? No, Elsie, I wouldn't be able to make it now. But I know the boys are loved going to church. It's great for them and so on and so on. He kept speaking for us and we never had a, a word to say. And Elsie says, well, Tommy, tell me this. Would the boys be interested in joining the boys' brigade? I thought that's church twice on a Sunday and now Thursday night in the church with the boys' brigade. And my dad said, yes, Elsie, they would love to go to the boys' brigade. Off we went on a Thursday night. She came back again trying to get my dad out and said, Tommy, would the boys be interested in the youth club on a Friday night? I thought twice on a Sunday, Thursday night and now Friday night in the church? Come on. Yes, uh, Elsie, uh, my dad said to Elsie, yes, the boys would love to go to the youth club. She came back again. Tommy, would you not come out to church? Well, Elsie, no, I don't think I would. And then she says, Tommy, do you think the boys would like to be confirmed? I thought, please, Dad, not confirmation. Monday night, confirmation classes started. And yes, Elsie, the boys would love to be confirmed. And off we went. So it was a Monday night in the church, twice on a Sunday, Thursday and a Friday night. The final straw for me. Elsie came round one night and she had a tape recorder with her. It's not the little gadget you see today. It's about the size of a breeze block. You builders would know what it is. There are times whenever we had electric and times when we didn't. I'll tell you a story just for the simple reason it glorifies the Lord. I came home from school one day. I was at the local primary school. And as I was at, uh, in the house, I heard a knock at the door. I opened the door and there was a man standing from the electricity board away in the 70s. And I said, yes, what is it? And he says, is your daddy in, son? I says, no, he's, he's just working next door in the paper factory, but he'll be home about five o'clock. He says, well, I can't wait. He says, um, your father hasn't paid a single bill that has come his way. He's been warned. He's been sent letters. And I'd read those letters as they sat about the house, and I knew exactly what money he owed. He owed money for rent. He owed money for the television. He owed money for the electric. Never paid a single bill. And he says, son, I'm sorry to have to tell you, but I'm here to cut your electric off. And so he did. He came in and he worked at the meter and he snipped some wires and so on. And the place was in darkness. My father came home at five o'clock, hit a few switches and says, what's wrong with these lights? I never forget it because he says, Dad, a man from the electricity board arrived today and he's cut our electric off. And he says, did you let him in? I says, I did. He was going to kill me for letting him in. But I says, Dad, you never paid your bill. He says, you shouldn't have let him in. So off my father went to the Windsor bar to drown his sorrows. And he says, them poor boys, he says, if nothing to cook on or anything, we had a gas cooker. So that was all right. And he says, and if no heat, we had an open fire. And then he went on and on. And we were just living by candlelight. So it didn't matter to us one bit. And he said, you know, them poor boys. And this man says, Tommy, you leave that with me. I'll fix that. So he came down the next day or the next couple of days. And he arrived at our house unofficially from the Northern Ireland Electricity Board. I'll not give his name away. And uh, he joined the wires up. And the place was like Blackpool Illuminations, all lit up. And for about a week or so, the electricity board didn't realise that 10 James's Street was up and running and on full metre. And there they were. And eventually they took my dad to court. 
and they agreed a certain figure out of his wage and he paid that and they basically scrapped most of his arrears and so on. But uh, I never forget it. It was in a meeting I mentioned that and at the door this man met me and he says, do you know who I am? And I had a look at him. He says, I do. You're the man that put our electric on. It's a good boy. It wasn't a good job. It wasn't a fellow who cut it off, I can tell you. It'd be a case of holding the Bible to hit him. <laughs> and uh, he says, I want to tell you something, son. I don't want to give his name away because he's still alive today. He says, I want to tell you something, son. He says, I remember that day as clear as crystal. And see all you said in your testimony about those house parties, those gambling schools. I was at every one of them. I was never out of your house. But I just wanted to tell you something, son, tonight. He says, I have come to know the Lord Jesus Christ Amen. as my own and personal Saviour. I'm Lord. a saved man now. <clears throat> and I rejoiced. I was about to give his name away there because he was never done for that, by the way. And uh, <laughs> So Elsie came round. She plugged the tape recorder in. She said to the three boys, would you like to sing into that? You ever heard yourself sing? <laughs> Unless you can sing. <laughs> but you ever heard yourself sing? Wow. It is bad. So the three of us sung one by, I don't know who it was, Donny Osmond or something, or Marie Osmond or whatever, called Paper Roses. If you find it in your hymn book, throw it in the bin on the way out, let me tell you. And Elsie rewound this tape recorder and said to my dad as she played it back with the three of us singing into it, Tommy, what do you think of that? And my dad said, Elsie, that's lovely. So he, he must have been full drunk, I can tell you. And Elsie said this, she says, Tommy, would the boys like to join the choir? And I thought, Dad, please, please, I beg you, not, not the choir, Dad. And when was choir practice? Choir practice was on Tuesday night. There's only Wednesday night left of the whole entire week. But Tuesday night was the Young People's Disco in Mournview Community Centre. I never missed that disco. First in, last out. Couldn't dance, never danced. Just went. I would never miss it. Choir practice, Tuesday night. I went along, Billy McKeown, I'll name him. He's the choir master and he says, right, son, over here. And he gave me this frilly collar. He says, put that on. I put it round me. I had long hair in them days. I had long hair, but of a short back and shine now, but I had long hair. And I stood in that choir room saying to myself, there's no way on this earth I'm wearing this. And then he called my two brothers over and gave them a frilly collar as well. And he wasn't finished. He says, right, son, over here. And he gave me a black frock right down to my feet. And I stood like this thinking, we're not wearing this. Definitely not. Frilly collar, black frock. Called my two brothers over and did the same to them. And I thought, this is terrible. But he wasn't finished. He says, right, son, over here. And he gave me a white smock to go over the black frock with a frilly collar and the long hair. And my face was beetroot. And I says, there's no way. Am I walking up and down the aisle of that church dressed like this? And my father says, you're going, son, and that's it. I couldn't believe it. And it was very embarrassing. But you know, eventually, Elsie succeeded in getting my dad out of church. She succeeded. I know people give up after the first time. Even the second or third and say, well, you can't push them too much. But Elsie never gave up. Amen. And she got Tommy Martin out to church. And eventually one night he was getting ready. He'd been out to church. He was getting ready. And I says, Dad, where are you going? And Dave says, are you going to the darts match, the dinner dance? No, no, I'm not. Are you going to Glenavon tonight? No, no. I'm going to a gospel tent campaign with Elsie. Amen. It was 1976. Dick Saunders had been preaching in what is known as the Way to Life Crusades. He was preaching the gospel with power. And individuals in Lurgan, sinners, big sinners, were being converted 
and saved by God's grace. And you couldn't deny the power of God in those meetings. My father went along that night. He came home and immediately I knew there's something different about my dad. I told you he was a drunken, violent man. And all of a sudden I knew there was a change. He went straight up to bed, an unusual thing. He never did that. He was always afraid of death. And he never would have gone to bed, no matter how drunk he was, without first putting his three boys up, then doing a search of the house. The fire guard had to be up. Plugs had to be out before he would go to bed. Went straight up to bed, got changed and got into bed. And he called the three of us up and we ran up those stairs and jumped on his bed. And as best as my dad knew how in those days, he said, lads, your old man's got saved. Right. You know, we said, what does saved mean? Well, my brother David asked that. Dad, what does saved mean? Does it mean there's going to be no more drink? And he said, son, that's right. Amen. No more drink and no more parties mm -hmm. and nothing more in this house again. Mm -hmm. In fact, to tell you the truth, once my dad got saved a few weeks later, or so, the house fire came to our house. The factory next door caught fire and burnt our house basically to the ground. My father have the picture now of the front of the Lurgan Mail. My father standing with some few belongings on the street and his three boys standing in rags. And my father said in the midst of that turmoil, he said, son, it's just the Lord burning my past. There's no return to those days. Mm -hmm. I didn't understand it then, but I fully understand it now. Mm -hmm. And if any man be in Christ, he's a he's new a creature. creature. All things are passing away. He's not perfect. Mm -hmm. All things are becoming new. He still fails. Mm -hmm. But I saw the change. And young as I was then, I realized there was a God in heaven. I realized that the Lord Jesus Christ saves sinners. Hallelujah. I realized that there was power in the gospel. And my father, from a drunken, violent man, became a loving, caring father. Hallelujah. He started to pray for me. He started to share the gospel with me. And I believe in many ways the first time I heard it was from my father, an old wino from James' Street, whom God saved by his matchless grace. Praise his name. And he would have sat down and shared with us the simplicity of the gospel showed me from the Bible I was a sinner, mm -hmm. lost. And if I died in my sin where Jesus was, I would never be. Mm -hmm. He showed me the love of God in Christ at the cross. He taught me in a measure the substitutionary nature of that cross. Mm -hmm. Christ dying for me. Christ suffering for me. Christ bearing my sin. Mm -hmm. Christ offering to God a sacrifice for me. And I began, I believe, for the first time in my life to understand something of what the Bible calls your need. Mm -hmm. Your need of a saviour. Many a time as a young person, I knew what I needed to do. Yes. I needed to repent. I needed to take Christ into my heart and into my life. But there seems to be so many things in this world were demanding my attention. And I thought to myself, because this is what the devil does, doesn't he? The devil couldn't rob me of the great truth that I had now, the truth of the gospel, that Christ is a great saviour for me, a great sinner, that he died for me at the cross, that I need him. And if I'm ever to be in heaven, I must go through Christ to be there. I must trust him and receive him. I knew all that. And the devil couldn't rob me of that. So he does the, ne the next best thing, you know. 
and he tells you this don't do it now you have plenty of time but the Bible says behold now is the accepted time now is the day of salvation so the devil was working his mind into mine and I was believing as a fool that I could just live my life as I please now think of it what a wicked philosophy live my life ruin my life and then at the end of my life when I'm maybe 60, 70, 80 or 90 just hand over to God the dregs of a sin cursed life when the Bible says, remember, now thy creator in the days of thy youth. It's the best time to get saved That's right. as a young person. Mm-hmm. But you know, sin will always take you further than you want to go. And I tell you, I headed off into the bright lights of this world. But they tell us during the time when the maze was functional, that the brightest light seen by an aircraft over Northern Ireland at night was the lights over the maze prison. But I didn't intend to go there. I intended to go out and enjoy myself with my friends, with my mates, with my acquaintances. I went out with David, my brother, and Colin went in another direction. And sadly, and I'll cut a long story short, David and I, I got into the wrong company. I don't want to blame those people because the Bible says, be sure your sin will find you out. And whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. So I take the full responsibility for everything that I have done. I don't blame my upbringing as such. I don't blame the peer pressure in my day. I don't blame the fact that in my generation, and it's a different generation young people have now and things to contend with, I had to contend with loyalists, paramilitaries in my day young people you have different temptations drugs many many other things that I didn't have but that was my big temptation loyalist paramilitaries who were constantly working on the young generation night and day (coughs) organizing better than any church meetings to recruit young men and women into their ranks David and I chasing after sinful pleasure. A little enjoyment as we heard in the hymn. We're caught up in the house parties in Portadown. Can bring you to the very place this very night. Where sadly I was sworn in to the UVF. I got charged with that by the way. That's why I can mention it. It wasn't too long before the RUC as they were known then. Arrived at my door at half past six in the morning. They banged that door that the whole neighbourhood, we lived in in Mornview Estate, the entire neighbourhood were up. The roar of those old grey Land Rovers just began to shake the ground. And people came out to their doors. They gathered around those Land Rovers in a semicircle and our house was surrounded by the RUC. My father got up out of bed. He went to that door shaking. And and they said, "Uh, does Thomas and David Martin live here? Yes, where are they? Straight through, my father, I could hear him to this day, I can hear him crying, saying, leave my boys alone. They've done nothing. You've got the wrong boys. Leave them alone. Up the stairs, they came straight into my bedroom. I just lay in bed, knew full well what was happening. 
He just looked at me and he asked me my name. I confirmed who I was and immediately he took me out of bed, handcuffed me, brought me in from my whole neighbour standing there. I never forget it. What a fool. Turning round to my father and saying, Dad, you've nothing to worry about. We have done nothing. We'll see you very soon. I wasn't to see my father for a further six and a half to seven years. They were taken into custody, David and I. They were remanded in custody, charged with some terrorist offences. Eventually our case took a turn for the worse. A loyalist Supergrass, who's in prison for murder this very night in Magabre. He turned what is known as Queen's Evidence. Supergrass, we call it. He was the first loyalist Supergrass. A detective from England called Middlemass was brought over to oversee that entire Supergrass case and to make sure that there were convictions and heavy sentencing for all of those men. But some men in particular, I can mention one man simply because he's now dead. And that was William Stephen Wright. Billy Wright. And my entire case was called William Stephen Wright versus the Crown. My name wasn't even mentioned in that. William Stephen Wright versus the Crown. So really, they were trying to get some more senior figures. But they took the lambs as well. And rightly so. But what happened was it fell around their feet. The entire case collapsed whenever the supergrass, some people would know him, and supergrass retracted his evidence, caught out in lies. The entire case fell to the ground and some of the leading loyalist figures from Mid-Ulster were released back onto the streets. But there were still 14 of us who were kept in jail and David and myself received the stiffest sentence out of those 14 men apart from one. David and I went up into the Crumlin Road Court, number one court. It was packed. My father was in the public gallery. You see him crying to this day. And the judge said, I find you guilty. And he sentenced me to some 12 years in prison. He went on to sentence me to some 27 years in jail, uh, running concurrently with the 12-year sentence. So immediately my mind kicked in, 50% remission, at at least six years further to serve in Her Majesty's Hotel down in the maze. But what happened was David was only 19 and I was coming 20. And uh, David 18 and I was coming 20. And we were under 21 years of age, so they couldn't move us down to the maze prison. And neither could they take us down to Hyde Bank Young Offenders Centre because it was five years, 11 months, or four years, 11 months was the stiffest sentence to be put, put there. So we were already on remand in the Crumlin Road for 13 months. And what happened was they kept us behind the wire, a prison within a prison, for two weeks. And there was myself, David, and another young man, and I'll give his name, from County Armagh. And he was along with us. He was only about 18 years as well. We were the youngest prisoners sentenced uh, in Northern Ireland at that present time. And I don't know what happened, but someone in the Northern Ireland office, hopefully you're not here tonight, reclassified us as long-term prisoners and sent us down to the now infamous Mays Prison. And what a baptism into prison it was because it was 1981 during the time of the hunger strikes whenever we entered in to the Mays Prison. And immediately we asked for separation for, from Republicans and we joined the ongoing loyalist protest for segregation. 
I don't want to go into detail, but we spent perhaps some of the worst years on God's created earth during that time. But you know the remarkable thing? (coughs) That in the midst of all that turmoil, and it was evil, and there were psychopaths there, and I was no better. But I will tell you this. God had saved a couple of prisoners. Amen. And those men couldn't be housed anywhere. Nobody wanted them. Mm-hmm. They couldn't go and serve as orderlies on Republican wings. They couldn't go down to what is known as the non-conforming wings because there weren't any. At that stage, you were either loyalist or Republican. Whoever would take you. And others were just spread across to McGilligan and other places in order that they wouldn't be put in with these men. So these men became orderlies on the loyalist wings. Some of them were literally comrades of those that they were serving. But they found favour in the sight of those men. And they began to share Christ with their fellow man. And it wasn't too long before these men approached me with the gospel. Started to witness to me. My father came down to the prison and he had every prayer group that he knew praying for his two boys. I meet people to this day and we've said, we've been praying for you two boys for years. Cut a long story short, uh, some men in particular began to really spend time with me and open up the Bible and they began to show me from Scripture. One man said to me one time, Tom, do you believe the Bible is the Word of God? And he says, I do. He says, so it cannot lie then. I says, that's right. And he says, there's a verse of Scripture. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Now it says all. And you just said this is the word of God. You just says it can't lie. So therefore there's the truth. You are a sinner. Now you might say to me. Surely you know you're a sinner in the maze prison. But you know even in prison there's a pecking order. I could look at another prisoner and say. Well I've never taken life. I never broke into someone's house. And robbed them of all their jewellery. I never robbed the post office for the senior citizen's pension. I never did this or that or the other. And I would just be better than they are. That's all I would be. So you looked around and you just says, well, look, there's the Shankill butchers in next door to me. And surely I wouldn't be as bad as those people. But I was, all have sinned, come short of the glory of God. And for the first time in my life, I began to consider myself a sinner. I went back to my cell. I lay through the night season thinking, there's no difference. And the man next door to me, I'll not mention his name, one of the Shankle Butchers, he's still alive. He was next door to me and I thought to myself, surely in God's eyes I couldn't be as bad as he is. Those words came to me. No difference. And I thought of prison officers. I said, they're upholding the law. They're enforcing the law. Are they the same as me? They haven't done what I have done, but in God's sight they're still sinners. All have sinned. And then suddenly it dawned in me that that sense of guilt, that burden that I'd carried for a number of years, I realized it was known as conviction. I was troubled about my sin. I was very anxious. I couldn't sleep. I had no happiness, no joy. Do you know what happened? I lifted a little booklet that had come into the jail by the the late Noel Grant. It's called Let Him In. And it's based on Revelation 3 and verse 20. And it's a wonderful image and a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ standing outside the heart's door knocking, seeking to come in. Revelation 3.20 Behold, 
I stand at the door and knock. And for 21 years of my life, the Lord Jesus Christ was on the outside. I had kept him out. My sin barred the door. My love of pleasure was the padlock. As far as I was concerned, I would meet everyone but Christ. The door would be shut to him, but open to everyone else. And I began to read that little booklet and I could see it clearly. The Lord was on the outside. I had never invited him in. I'd never received him. That's what's happened to my dad. Christ has come into his life and changed him from the inside out. And that's what I need. I didn't know it was salvation. I didn't know that it was a work of regeneration. Listen to me. I could hardly tell you a book of the Bible hardly. I could hardly find it. But this I did know, that I was a sinner and Christ was a saviour for me. And on the 13th of June, 1983, lying in the maze prison on the top bunk, I set the little booklet down. There might have even been a wee prayer at the back of it where it says, Come into my heart, Lord Jesus. Come in today. Come in to stay. Come into my heart, Lord Jesus. Now, people will say, theologically, you couldn't be saved in a prayer like that. You couldn't be. Sure, there's no mention of sin, repentance. There's no deep contrition there. But I'll tell you this, whosoever shall call. Hallelujah. Shall be saved. Amen. And I didn't know any other way just to tell the Lord that I was a sinner. I didn't know the theology. I didn't have anyone like the Ethiopian eunuch did to guide him. And I didn't understand. But I knew enough. I knew my need of him. Amen. And I called. And I'm telling you, friends, he came into my heart. Hallelujah. He came into my life. And you might say to me, how did you know you were saved? Well, the old preacher used to say, was there when it happened, I ought to know. But let me tell you how I do know. I'll give you the answer to that question. And I'll tell you, there's still, you don't need deep theology for this. How do I know I'm saved? I'll tell you exactly how I knew that night. Because for years, I carried this heavy burden. And I was a sense of guilt and wrongdoing. But that night when the Lord saved me, he took away the burden. Praise the Lord. He took away the guilt. Yes. And I know that I've done things wrong in my life. And I can't put that right. I've tried my best to atone for that. Not for salvation. To put back into society what I've taken away from it. But I'll tell you this. That night the Lord saved me by his free grace. Why he set his love on me. I do not know. I bow the knee and I worship him. And I am nothing, nothing. A sinner saved by God's grace. And I tell you friend. I'm bound for hell. And if God had to put me in hell, I would have to say, as the reading said, even so, Father, it seemed good in thy sight. And it'd been a righteous thing with God if he'd have sent me to hell. But he didn't. He didn't. Amen. And for all eternity, God gets the glory Amen. for his mercy endureth forever. And why he set his love on me, I am nothing. But I'll tell you this, the Lord loves you as much as he loves me. Right. The Lord can save you as much as he saved me. He can pardon every one of your sins and he can save your soul right this moment. Mm -hmm. Before you leave this house, you can be saved. It's not a wonderful thing. Amen. Would you not want to be saved? Would you not want Christ in your heart and in your life? The next morning when I got up, I knew I was saved. Mm -hmm. And I went under that prison wing. I found my brother David. I went up to the washroom, put a bit of water around my face and I looked at him and I says, Dave, I got saved last night. And he says, you what? 
I says, I became a Christian last night. I got saved last night. And David went down the prison wing, started to tell everybody his brother Thomas had just come to the Lord. And I thought, uh-oh, these psychopaths hear this. They'll do me to death. I'll be the first martyr in the Mace prison. Do you know the first visit you get from the outside whenever people hear you're saved? It's not from the clergy. That's right. It's from the RUC. You maybe want to help us with inquiries, Thomas. <laughs> Clear up a few cases. But I says, listen, you've heard everything I've ever done in my life. The only thing I didn't tell you was a child used to fog the orchards, but you wouldn't put me in jail for that. So I just feel that I have nothing to hide. Mm-hmm. There's no skeleton in the cupboard. And I do believe I got my just desserts when I did. And I deserved it. But I've become a recip- recipient of God's grace. Mm-hmm. Free grace. <coughs> His mercy and his love. And the Lord didn't give me that because I went to church. And he didn't give me that because I read the Bible. And he didn't show me grace and mercy and love because I started to reform my life. He saved me as I was, a guilty, vile, hell-deserving sinner. The glory's his tonight. Amen. And I thank the Lord seven weeks later. I heard this mighty hallelujah in the prison wing. I rushed out of my cell, looked up, and there was my brother David. He had just shared with another prisoner, uh, Tonto, you called him Jim Watt, <coughs> I just shared with him the news that he had come to know Christ as his own and personal saviour. I had to be careful what I say here because I left the uh, paramilitary wings. I became a non-conforming, no, I became a conforming prisoner and uh, we were acknowledged with a change in our lives and we became what is known as trustees in the Mays Prison. That doesn't mean that I'm on the title deeds of the Mays Prison, by the way. <laughs> it simply means, and although I never got to do this, but I would love to have, there were only three trustees that I can remember in the Mays Prison during that time. There might have been more after, I don't know, but there were only three, and I would guess that's the only three in the history. There's a young fellow, Jim Smith from Scotland, my brother David and myself. We were on what is known as the chief officer's work party. We could be trusted by the governor and the chief officer to work even outside the prison walls. Mm-hmm. Now, we were never tested. <laughs> I reckon I would have run on home, you know. <laughs> I wouldn't have got back in the game. But the Lord blessed me. I was able to give out gospel tracts to listen right through the entire prison, place a gospel tract because what we did was we went on to the wings. The prisoners were moved out of the H blocks. Two of the H of the two, two wings of the H were, were occupied and the other two were empty. We went on, literally cleaned them out, painted them, put new furniture in and I put a gospel track in every locker. Mm-hmm. It became part of the tick box. When the officers were going round for inspection, they went like this. Locker, table, bed, pot, as well there's no toilets, <laughs> pot. That wasn't dope, by the way. <laughs> and the other one, this is true, gospel track. Aye. Gospel track. Prison officer went in because obviously we're still cons. We weren't really trusted 100%. And rightly so. There was a search party always came in after because if cons were there, and that's what we're called by the way, if cons were there, you always had to go in and to make sure that we didn't plant a gun or we're moving stuff around. And they came in, one prison officer searched around, found nothing, but a, a gospel track, got it, scrambled it up and fired it out. Another prison officer came running down the wing, shouting, Oi! Pick that up. And he went, what? Pick it up now and put it back where you got it. That's part of the furniture. Praise the Lord for that. And we believe in our hearts, Republicans and loyalists, twice over. We visited the entire blocks right through the time we were there. All of them got a gospel track at least twice. 
We thank the Lord for that. Now, I met my wife when I was in jail. Be careful what I say. I said that in a meeting one time and a woman came up to my wife afterward and says, what were you in for, love? <laughs> my wife was never in prison. She would be mortified if I thought for a moment I'd suggested she was in jail. But what I will say to you is this. My wife was saved when she was eight years of age. She didn't drink, smoke, go to discos. She didn't do anything of this world at all. But remarkably, when she was eight, do you know what she realized? The same as me. There's no difference for all of sin and come short of the glory of God. June started to write to me. We started a relationship in prison for two and a half years. We had a relationship sustained by God's grace in jail. I have seen her during those two and a half years for two and a half weeks. That's why it lasted, you know. <laughs> and uh, half an hour every so often in visits. We worked it out at the visits that we had. And it was a two and a half weeks that we'd really seen each other. And the rest was correspondence by letter. I had all those letters, 250 or so that I had written to June. I never published them in the book because they're too romantic, you know. I didn't realise what a romantic fool I was in those days, you know. It's all out the window now. I'm a joke. joke. But the Lord, uh, we were released from jail in 1988. And uh, we thank the Lord for whenever I got out. I was married in 1988 as well in the month of June. I was saved in the month of June. You call my wife June. Her birthday's in June. June's a very good month for us, by the way, <laughs> as you would appreciate. And we had three boys and we couldn't call any of them June. So we called them Aaron, Samuel and Timothy. My eldest boy is with me tonight as well with his girlfriend, Rebecca. Glad to see them here in the Amen. meeting. But the Lord has blessed me with three boys. They're as wild as March hers, but it's the, it's the Thompson gene, my wife's maiden name, that has come right in them. Uh, the Lord called me to Bible college through his own word. I haven't time to deal with it, for time has beaten me again. But the Lord called me into Bible college. I had no formal education. And by the way, I don't want you to feel sorry for me in anything that I've been through in my life because the Lord has been good to me. Amen. Very good to me. And listen, if he never had done anything else for me uh, but save me, I can say he's been eternally mm-hmm. good to me. But the Lord has been more than good. And I stand here and I just stand in awe and wonder of him, of how he could love me, a sinner condemned unclean. But he has. Mm -hmm. And he saved me. Thank you, Lord. And I love him tonight. I'm not ashamed to say that, by the way. Mm -hmm. I'm not ashamed to say it. I love him. You know why? Because he first loved me. That's why. And he died on the cross for me. As if I was the only sinner in the world. And you know what he's done for me? He has saved me from hell. I know what it's like to be incarcerated. I know what it's like to be sentenced and found guilty. Mm-hmm. I know what it's like to be punished for a little season. Mm-hmm. But it's nothing compared to an eternity in hell. Mm-hmm. But Jesus saves, friend. Amen. He saves from the guttermost to the uttermost. Jesus it. saves. Jesus <laughs> saves. Let me finish by saying something to you. The Lord finished Bible college like David. I went through the... Uh, Whitfield College of the Bible for four years in a theological course. The Lord's seen us all through. We praise him for that. And uh, the Lord opened the door in Lisburn and I've been there nearly 19 years serving the Lord faithfully. And I love it. I believe I'm in the center of God's will for my life. And guess what? It's the sweetest place on earth. That's right. And it's the soundest place on earth, the center of his will. And I stand, I believe this with all of my heart and God's my witness tonight. I'm in the center of his will. And there's no better place. That's right. Now, whenever I was young, my mum and dad split up. My dad told me he got a letter from England to say that Maureen, my mother, had died. 
My brother Colin, he's a super prod, by the way. And uh, if you're ever in Mournview Estate in Lurgan, two o'clock in the morning, and the windows are open, and there's a big, big ghetto blaster in the middle of the green, blasting out loyalist music. That's my brother Colin. You should call in and say hello to me and tell him you know Thomas. But uh, he sent away for his passport because he was going on a holiday to Spain. Isn't Spain a Roman Catholic country? Oh, no, he's going there. He used to keep him going. And then he sent away for his passport and he got his birth certificate. He had to go and get his birth certificate along with the passport. So he sent away to England to get this birth certificate. Came back again. And mother's maiden name said, what do you hear? Something like Patricia Josephine. No, Patricia Maria Josephine Flanagan. And I says, Colin, that's not right. I mean, someone knows you, boy, and they've done that for a laugh. She says, I couldn't know me. He says, I didn't send to Belfast. We have to send to Nottingham. That's where our records are. He says, have you got a birth certificate? I says, no. He says, send it away. And, and I sent away for one I did. £11 later, for that's what it cost me. <laughs> this birth certificate came and it said, Patricia. That's what it was. Patricia Maria Josephine Flanagan. I says, Colin, there's something wrong, boy. They must have the wrong Martin clan here. So David, he had his birth certificate. We says to David, what does it say for mother's maiden name? Opens it up. Uh, Maureen Corbett. I went, well, you're not even my brother. <laughs> and I, I have held back on hitting you because I thought you were my kith and kin. And he says, no, this can't be right. So my Aunt Eva, my Aunt Eva filled in for us at every family occasion for my mum. She stood in for my mother. We approached her and a few other people that we knew. And they says, you know, boys, before your father died, my father died in February 1990 and has gone home to be with the Lord. He says, your father should really have told you the truth, boys. He says, Thomas and David, I want to let you know, and Colin as well, that your mother never died. In fact, Thomas is living 22 miles from your house. And for years, nearly 40 odd years, she has sought to contact her children. But she was never permitted. She even went down to the maze prison because she saw your case and your names mentioned on the television. But they wouldn't let her in. And she couldn't get in. And I'll tell you what, boys, if you want to know where she is and you want to visit her, then I'll tell you. It was a difficult one for Colin, but David and I, no matter what happened, she was still our natural mum. And I wanted to meet her. Uh -huh. I wanted to tell her what the Lord had done for my soul Amen. and she was living in Bangor I travelled down she was four foot four I wonder where I get my height from I felt like a giant beside her <laughs> ten years previous Maureen had made a profession of faith but when I met her she was either not saved or deeply backslidden for she was drinking heavily smoking like a trooper cursing worse than any man that I've ever heard I sat in that home deeply grieved as I shared with her the gospel, what Christ had done for my soul. I'll tell you the name, Corbett and Flanagan. She was adopted by a family in West Belfast, in Anderson's town. And she took that adoptive name as she took her name, Corbett. By the way, she was never married to my dad. But what she did do, she registered the children in different names so she'd claim all the different benefits. They talk about the doing the double, I reckon Maureen was doing the triple. <laughs> she was getting money for one and money for the other and getting all this rent coming in. My father was registered in Martin. She was Corbett and Flanagan. So there was three incomes coming in there and they were on a little scheme. There's no doubt about that. So we got to know our mother over two years. And about, I don't know exactly the time now. It could be eight or nine years ago. But my mum 
took seriously ill. I went down to the Ulster Hospital to visit and David and I, along with some others, we were the last ones to speak to her. And I urged upon Maureen that she would just call on the name of the Lord and be saved. Now, I don't know if she did. I don't know where she is tonight. She may be in heaven, she may not. But I do know the Lord closed the chapter for me. Mm -hmm. I was able to speak to my mum and tell her what the Lord had done for my soul and how good the Lord has been. I did her funeral service the time of the week of prayer in Kilkeel. I left on the Wednesday, told one other minister, the Reverend Noel Hughes, would you come with me for I've got to bury my mum today. And he did. He helped me out with the funeral service. We returned home on the Wednesday evening to the week of prayer and there wasn't a single minister, student, lay preacher or individual knew a single thing about that. I just carried it quietly in my heart before the Lord. But the Lord has been good to me. And friends, I'm deeply sorry for going over the time tonight. But I trust that God will overrule that. Amen. Take our minds off that. And just bring one precious soul to know the Lord Jesus Christ as their personal Saviour. Perhaps we could just bow briefly in prayer. Let's just bow in prayer. Merciful God, yes. we want to thank thee tonight from the depth of our heart for all that we have heard by way of Brother Thomas's testimony. Lord, this is his story. Yes. And we thank thee tonight for saving him. Yes. And we thank thee, O God, for supplying his need from that day until now. And O God, we just ask thee as the gospel has been faithfully presented in the testimony, that if there's one soul here even one. troubled in heart, having a desire and a thought that they too would love to be saved, yes. Lord, give them that enabling and deciding grace even to call now. For we believe, whosoever shall call in the name That's of the right, Lord, Lord shall be saved. Shall. Lord, we ask Glory. now in Jesus' name, that you will remember us as we leave. Even speak to those that are backslidden. Help them to return with all their heart and true repentance. And meet with thee. And oh God, know the life of God and the rejoicing of the Lord in their soul. Amen. We just pray now that you'll part us in your fear with your blessing. We pray, Lord, you'll take us to your homes in safety. Yes. And we ask thee that thou will continue to yes. answer prayer for us, Please, Lord. unworthy as we are, yes. for Jesus' sake. Amen. 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 Thank you tonight. <clears throat>